0: Welcome to Present Value Podcast, created, produced, and hosted by Cornell MBA students. As writers and co executive producers, Ryan Silbert and Aaron Tracy collaborated with author James Patterson to create the Audible original drama, The Coldest Case. And to give all of you listeners some context about today's guests, is my classmate and friend, Simon Lang, the founder of Cornell MBA's Media and Entertainment Club.
1: Simon Lang here, and I'm thrilled to introduce two Cornell alums, Aaron Tracy and Ryan Silbert. Aaron has written on popular TV series such as Law & Order, SVU, and is the creator and executive producer of Sequestered, a serialized thriller that ran two seasons on Sony's Crackle Network. In 2018, USA Network produced Aaron's pilot, The Tap, starring Oscar winner Tom McCarthy, an executive produced by prolific filmmaker Rob Reiner. Aaron also hosts his own brilliantly titled podcast To Live and Dialogue in L.A. on the Yale Podcast Network, which features conversations with film personalities including Ron Howard and Michael Douglas. Ryan Silbert is an Academy Award-winning filmmaker, winning that prestigious prize for producing the 2010 live-action short film God is Love about a dart-throwing lovesick lounge singer. If you have 19 minutes to spare and want a good laugh, I highly recommend watching this on Topic's streaming service for free. Ryan is not only a writer, author, and producer, but he is also the founder of Origin Story Entertainment, a multi-platform entertainment company with a global focus on storytelling. Ryan also co-created the Audible original called Alliances, A Trick of Light, alongside the legendary Stan Lee. On today's episode... Ryan and Aaron sit down with Present Value host and my friend, Christine Gabrelian, to discuss their most recent work, which was just released today, March 11th, 2021.
0: Stay tuned at the end for an exclusive sneak peek or sneak listen at the first episode in the series.
2: All right. So Ryan and Erin, thank you both for being here today and congratulations on the release of your Audible original. We're thrilled to have both of you here today, not only because the two of you are co-creators and executive producers behind this project, but also because you are both Cornell undergrad alum. And the two of you actually met on campus freshman year and had even worked on some projects together during college. I'd love to hear more about those undergrad days. Aaron, why don't we start with you?
3: Um, that's a bad idea. I have zero memory.
4: Ryan's better at this kind of thing. Did we work on a project together, Ryan? Yeah, you gave me my big break, Aaron. I, uh, you know, when you Aaron would use me to test out all of his material, which I thought maybe meant that he um, thought I could be an actor, which was, uh, the, the wrong pursuit for me. Certainly. Little did I know. You're a but great work... actor.
3: What are you talking about? <laughs>
4: yes. Yes. Yeah. But we learned a lot together. You know, I think what part of, part of like going to college, it, one of the wonderful things about finding like sympathetic, um, uh, collaborators is that like you're sharing and like, and discovering a lot of material together at the same time. So, um, and introducing each other to a lot of stuff. So I think Aaron introduced me to the West wing, which was a hundred and <sighs> some episodes later, taught me a lot about taught me more about politics than I probably learned in class
3: wow I'm more proud of that than anything then um I guess this is a podcast you can't see Ryan but he has looked like Martin Scorsese since freshman year at Cornell uh so he was an easy person to latch on to obviously a film buff and uh yeah we talked a lot of movies I remember you had you had the biggest was it blu-ray back then or was it just straight up dvd collection that i had ever seen
4: yeah. I think Aaron and I had a lot of time, spent a lot of time together in, in discovering the director's commentaries to all sorts of, uh, you yeah. know, seventies, seventies movies that you know, we could <laughs> share and would later probably influence some of the work we did together on the coldest case, but yeah. it, it, part of like collaborating, I think and Aaron would testify to this. Cause like he's collaborated with so many, um, incredible people. It's, it's, it's finding a common shared language. And a lot of that comes from your, um, you know, your inspirations and what drives you to be an author or to be a writer or to be a producer or be a filmmaker or TV, um, yeah, I don't
3: know what it was like in Port Washington, but growing up in DC, um, I didn't have a ton. I don't think I ever took like a film or TV class. I mean, not even like an appreciation class, like not even like in English class or, or in any, um, um, sort of extracurricular that I took. Did um, did we really start learning about film? So then, yeah, the first year when when Ryan and I met each other in college, when we took that great writing for for film class, um, which was one of those um, writing classes offered freshman year, we started watching what I remember so distinctly. Actually, Cabaret and Lone Star and Chinatown, and because those are the that was the first time that like we started watching movies with an eye toward you know, the academic side of things, like how they were shot, what the meaning is behind them. Um, I remember the instructor zeroing in on Polanski's obsession with um, single eyes and um, how that you know, obviously pertains to what happens to Evan, Evelyn Mulray at the end of the film. But also, if you look throughout the, the movie, Chinatown, you know, there's there's one headlight out on every car. And there are all these great symbols that if you're, you know, 18 and you're setting film for the first time, you're like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, so, yeah, so those kind, of, those kind of formative things you learn when you first go to college, yeah, they will influence you for the rest of your life.
2: Hmm, very true and a good pitch for the freshman writing seminar classes uh, <laughs> works out really well. so I guess along those same similar lines at least you know the two of you after college you went into you know the creative industries but in kind of a little bit of a separate uh, area, right so, Ryan kind of focusing on some certain types of content that are a little bit different than Aaron, what you focused on. And I'm wondering if if you two could speak about what you each focused on and how those different professional backgrounds actually contributed in a a positive and helpful way, as you alluded to, to this project uh, here today with Audible.
4: Yeah, Ryan, you want to start? Uh, Sure. So... One of the things that I think is wonderful about like the creative arts is that um, there's so many different places that you can find your voice and express your voice and something that Aaron and I talk a lot about and partially why we've been able to weave our way through different formats um, so well. So, you know, Aaron started in television, continues to work in television. I started in film, more traditional indie film and continue to weave my way through indie film. But as we find the industry changing and our actual interests um, can come forward in different ways. So like audio is a particularly vibrant format right now. It's something that Aaron and I had a lot of interest in before, uh, from radio plays. And it's something that is, you know, we are excited to be working in, but that said, like our interests are drawn from everywhere from music to, I know Aaron's a big music head. Um, and that's kind of what's fun about this business is being able to not just be one thing, um, and to be, able to apply what is just good storytelling across a different medium.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think most of the kind of writing I do, which is traditionally, um, for me been, been television, it's, it's two people in a room talking, you know, that's the kind of like Ryan was talking about the West wing. I mean, that's always been my kind of North star. I mean, that's, that's the sort of writing I like to do best, just like a, a meaty issue, a moral issue, a political issue. And you just get to opposing points of view and, you you go at it and you create drama um, and that's what audio dramas are you know it's sort of getting rid of all those silly visuals that you know directors and cinematographers care about and it's getting down to the purity of the of the writing so for a writer it's just incredibly cool um you know we can talk a little bit about what the director's job is uh, when you make these audio dramas but for the writer it's it's if you're used to writing or you know you aspire to write in that sort of, Aaron Sorkin style or Amy Sherman Palladino or Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, any, any writer who, um, you know, gravitates toward just, you know, character work and people in rooms talking, you will love audio drama.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. And also great that you two ended up kind of crossing paths again at a time when audio is, 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 you know, continuing to make big strides as well. Um, So before we get into the details of the production of your of the actual audio drama and the performance logistics, and certainly um, Aaron, as you mentioned, kind of you know what the director's role is in in a you know form of medium storytelling like this, I'd like to ask each of you, you know, were there any major contributing factors uh, as to why you chose to work on and create an audio drama at this time?
4: I think it comes down to like what is a writer if people ask. I think I must ask you this all the time, Aaron. Like, if you're at a Thanksgiving table, I always wish I was like a doctor because somebody like kind of knows what that is, and nobody ever asks like, "What surgery did they work on yesterday?" <laughs> but like with like with like Thanksgiving dinner is more like, "What did you work on yesterday?" Um, and you know, writer is a business. The business of writing is really about, and and entertainment just generally is just a deep seated uh, fuel of curiosity. And I think that you know the idea of working in audio was just we were curious about it frankly like both Aaron and I were curious about the medium and what we could do in it um and this was a really you know what kind of filmic kind of principles could we bring to it from a writing standpoint well how can we imbue subtext you know that's that, those are the kinds of questions we asked ourselves and i think again it comes out to curiosity and that's what kind of keeps a career alive in this business at least in my opinion right aaron would you yeah, agree
3: no totally um i mean maybe the best way to sort of answer the question is actually to tell you a little bit about how we ryan and i started working together um which is really just for this one project um so i had a relationship with James Patterson's company um, just from, you know, my agent basically sent me to meet with um, the executives who run Patterson's TV film company uh, to talk about a TV project, you know, because Patterson also does a lot for TV. Um, so I sat down and I had a great uh, lunch with them. And then uh, I talked to Ryan, just, just catching up, just, you know, we, we just talk on the phone sometimes catching up. And he was telling me about, His project with Audible. Um, I had never really, honestly, I had never really heard, I had no idea that Audible was doing podcasts. I certainly had no idea they were doing audio dramas. Um, I didn't know what an audio drama was, I would imagine. And I told him about my lunch with Patterson's people and um, that I had sort of a vague idea of maybe, you know, doing something weird with them, like what he was talking about with his Audible show could be interesting. Um, so we kind of joined forces. And so I brought, you know, Patterson's, uh, sort of team to the table and Ryan sort of brought audible to the table and the two of us, um, you know, hooked up with them and, and, and started this, uh, started this process. So it was, it was nice, you know, Ryan and I have, I think very different skill sets, but very complimentary skill sets. Um, so it was really helpful.
2: Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that that was the background of this. I'm I'm curious when, do you remember when that was?
4: It was a couple of years ago. I mean, the Audible, you know, as Aaron mentioned, has been always been an audio leader um, in both thought content, but also just like in business. I mean, they established the original audio player back in the late 90s. They were a hardware company, software company, and they became a leader in audio books and then audio plays. And they had they've dipped in and out of audio dramas over the course of whatever it is, multiple decades now. And they were acquired by Amazon a couple of years ago. So they were able to integrate really well with the Kindle and, and be really well positioned for the digital platforms. So when Aaron and I just started working on it, you know, with Audible, what's wonderful about them. And this is why, you know, giving the timeline of how this thing came together. It's, it's a, it's a, tr- I mean, Aaron, I think you would probably agree with this. It's like, they are so creator friendly that like the development process there is unlike anything else that I've experienced in film and TV They're They really trust in the creative process and, you know, really let, Uh, james Patterson entertainment aaron and myself go off and just kind of like ideate and figure things out and fumble around and come back with ideas and then you know bounce things off of them and i think that's part of why i think audio generally speaking is audible specifically is like a fun place to work because of it's it's very liberating for a creator right totally agree. yeah yeah yeah, completely
3: In, in tv you know you have so many different layers of notes and when you're working with smart execs who are given smart notes, I mean, there's nothing better than that because they're making your work better. But you are, you know, when you begin a pilot to the time you hopefully get your pilot shot, you are dealing with the notes of your production company or producers. And then you're dealing with the notes of your attachments, whether they be actors or directors. You're dealing with the notes of your studio. You're dealing with the notes of your network. Um, there's sort of an unlimited number of rounds of notes you can go through. Whereas with Audible, you know, as Ryan's saying, it's a couple gatekeepers who are, you know, giving you notes, but they have so much going on and they trust their creators and they empower their creators that it's a much, much, much,
4: much easier, more fun process. Yeah. It is a, but it was, but it was a multi year process, I will say. So, like, it was, it's not just that, like, okay, you come up with an idea for audio. Yeah. And then you just get some microphones and your AirPods and your recording in studios. Like it, it, it was a multi-year process of development. And then it was not intended to be produced during a pandemic. Um, it just happened to be slated to be produced during the pandemic. So it, it, in no way is it associated to it only in the sense that like we were put up with a challenge that was met by some really creative people we added to the team that could um, execute you know, yeah, like,
3: I mean, production could be literally two weeks on one of these shows, right? You get all your actors together, you have the scripts written, you get all your actors together. Um, You can go chronologically through the scripts and record the whole thing in two weeks because of this stupid global pandemic that we haven't find <laughs> ourselves in the production on this show was five months. Um, right. So, you know,
2: right. Happens. Right. So it's perfect that you were set up to be working on a project where, you know, you can really see the benefit of, you know, if need be, you can, st- you know people can still be entertained and you can still be making the entertainment on the writing side and the talent side.
4: Yeah. I think one of the things that from the, from the jump, and again, that comes down to like Aaron and I having a shared language over the course of a relationship that's maintained for 20 years or so is that, you know, from the, from the jump, we sort of set the principle up that we wanted to make this thing at a level in which we would expect our film and TV projects to be made. And that's where Audible was really supportive. And again, Mm -hmm. like that's why this thing took a couple of months when we went to production because we really wanted to get it right. We wanted the level of performance. We wanted the level of um, production to be, you know, what we remembered as our favorite films and TV, Mm -hmm. you know, but only in audio.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Just taking a step back for our listeners, I want to make sure that before we get into too many details, um, you know, our listeners can understand what exactly an audio drama is. Yeah. Now, you both, of course, know this form of storytelling very well, uh, but for a lot of our listeners, this this format of entertainment may be a little new. So, I'm curious, how would you go about describing it?
3: I want to hear Aaron's description. <laughs> I mean, the easiest way to describe it is just it's a TV show without any of the visuals. Mm. That's certainly, uh, I approach it that way. You know, I'm just telling interesting, dramatic stories that I might tell on TV. But in this case, instead of thinking of visuals, I'm thinking of soundscape. So everything else is kind of the same, you know, um, length, it's half hour episodes, Um, more or less. The nice thing about being on Audible is that they're not strict about that because there are no commercials you have to fit in, subscriber supported. Mm. But in terms of coming up with, you know, interesting act breaks for the end of episodes, middle of episodes, um, interesting cold opens and teasers, character progression, character arcs, plot arcs. It's
4: all the same kind of mm. stuff
3: that I do in TV. It's all the same kind of storytelling.
4: I think audio, to what Aaron's saying, is true. It is it is sort of without the visuals removed. But I, I, I look at it in the reverse. I always, because as an independent filmmaker, I rarely had access to excellent sets you know i'm not constructing yeah. massive um, warehouses and you know sound stages or whatever you have visuals that sometimes don't look great so the audio always has to sound good mm. and you what you forget in storytelling that we experience visually is that 55% of it is in the audio if you have bad audio on a movie forget about it you're sunk if you have mm. bad visuals and out of focus visuals but really good audio it doesn't matter because like what um Aaron said is true. It just it comes about the two people in the room having a conversation that is rife with drama and filled with subtext and, you know, layered like that onion that you want to strive for when you're writing a scene. So to me, that's what audio is. We've always been writing for audio. It's just that now um, we have more options for distribution and probably a more focused audience um than we have in a long time i mean in the 40s go back to those dvds that aaron and i used to watch like i remember those dvd extras you'd get the wizard of oz audio drama alongside the wizard of oz um movie yeah that's very cool
3: yeah and i mean and that is not to say you know while there are tons and tons of similarities between writing audio dramas and writing film and tv There are, of course, differences in the same way there's differences in writing for stage versus TV or writing for TV versus film. Um, Mm. Audio drama, what I like best about it is the intimacy of it. There's something about sitting on your couch, watching a TV screen, being 10 feet away from it that prevents you from getting too intimately involved with the characters often. With audio drama, it is quite literally in your head, right? It's coming in both of your ears and it's with you at all times. It's not like TV where you have to be sitting on a couch watching something passively. You can be going on the subway, you can be going to the bathroom, you can be going to the grocery store. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, these characters and the story is with you. And that Mm -hmm. just breeds an intimacy that you want to, you know, be aware of when you're writing your story, you know, you want to take advantage of it by creating more intimate moments by, um, you know, allowing your characters to, to speak more to, um, to, to tell you more about themselves so that you can get more involved in their journeys, because that's going to be really you know, I, I keep saying intimate, but it's going to be a very intimate experience that you have with these characters.
2: Right. No, intimacy certainly makes sense as, as the most fitting word for um, kind of what you're describing. But I am curious kind of in, in learning more about this genre, I guess my question for you is, I, you know, on the flip side with, with this intimacy kind of comes this this possibly difficulty in balancing, you know, the audio intimacy with the reality that, You know, your consumers, your audience are in fact likely consuming other, um, you know, other forms of whether it's um, grocery shopping, like you mentioned, or commuting, they're taking in other events throughout their day while they're also trying to take in that audio intimacy as well. So I'm curious for you how, you know, either one of you or, or both of you, how you sort of reconcile that balance between, you know, between the audio intimacy. And the reality that your your audience may still be doing other things. And you certainly don't want them to to miss out on the story that you're telling as well.
3: I guess for me, I I try not to worry about it. You know, I think if you're telling an engrossing story uh, with a lot of, you know, highs and lows and climaxes, um, and you've got characters that are drawing people in, people are going to pay attention. You know, and if they're not paying attention, if they're paying more attention to, you know, the fruit that they're picking at the grocery store or whatever, you've done a bad job as a storyteller, right? Like, I will say, I guess I do pay a little bit more attention than I might otherwise to reminding the audience where we are in the story. Just because people often, I think they're more likely in audio than in TV to stop mid-episode. Mm. You know, TV usually goes to the end of the episode and then you, you, you start up again a new one. With audio, I think, yeah, somebody calls or you bump into somebody and you just hit pause. So I, I would say I, I, I catch people up more. But otherwise, no, I, I, the hope is that you're telling a good enough, interesting enough, engrossing enough story that people are paying attention
4: yeah. I mean, I, I look at it from like the psychological side of it. And I agree with Aaron, like, I think what it, there's a empowering part of, you don't think about it necessarily in the writing outside of the making sure that the audience is oriented more often, probably, but the idea that you can experience audio anywhere is an opportunity. And I frankly think that like, at least in my own experience as a listener, you're, now codifying these experiences what you hear with what you're doing so like i will Mm -hmm. remember i remember exactly where i was um when i heard lincoln and the bardo you know a certain chapter on the west side highway when i was on my run i remember exactly where i was and like because there's a discordance between the two things that's not like film where you're in a black room dark room with a big screen it could be anywhere you know what i mean um it's not like tv like aaron was saying where there's a little bit of distance um It's its own thing. And in that, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to gauge it, to create memories, you know, lasting ones, I think.
3: Yeah, And I actually think that that's one of the mistakes that a lot of people make with audio dramas, which is um, if you listen to a whole bunch of them, you will find that narrators are prevalent. And I really don't think they're necessary. You know, in some cases, obviously, they're used to great, great effect. But in a lot of cases, they're used as crutches you know to because the the creators are are thinking that their audience you know needs a tour guide to basically set the scene because there's no visual and i think if you're just creating interesting characters and interesting scenes um you really don't need someone you know piping in uh, an omniscient narrator piping in to tell you where you are
2: along those you know, similar lines about how you can still create this world that people are listening to where they can still envision what's going on as if it's happening in front of them. I'm curious, and Erin, and I think we talked a little bit about this sort of how you might write something as an action line item for, for television, for example, versus what you would put in those details for audio only, and how you still use that opportunity to advance the story or the plot or the character development. I'm wondering if. Maybe to, to paint a picture of that for, for our listeners, maybe you could give an example of how you would um, you know, adapt that or change uh, something like that for, for audio only.
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess when I'm writing a TV script, all of the action lines are about what's going on visually, right? The character um, you know hands a piece of paper to another character, whatever it mm. is. In audio, I'm probably doing a lot more... Of the, I'm using those action lines a lot more to give the actor a sense of what's going on. Like it's much more just like the character hesitates, you know, or she's, you know, taking in the gravity of that sentence. Um, The soundscape is going to come much, much, much more from the audio engineers afterwards. Right. So, you know, a typical TV scene. You know, you you almost never, unless you're Aaron Sorkin, you're almost never writing a TV scene that's more than three pages, right? it's right. basically a three minute scene. That's seems to be roughly the attention span for people watching TV, um, and it's it's just sort of become the the rule of thumb. With audio, I'm writing you know five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 page scenes often of dialogue, and uh, they can just be two people in a room talking. Um, And I'm relying on you know what I know will be great choices by the sound engineer that we've hired um, afterwards to come up with you know interesting things happening in that scene. Whether that's um, you know maybe I'll write something like it's it's raining throughout the scene at the top of the scene, but I'm not going to write that in individual action lines, of course. Or um, you know they're uh, playing. I just wrote a scene um, where two of of the characters are playing pool, right? And so it's important that those uh, cue shots are uh, punctuating certain lines, but otherwise I'm just going to rely on the sound engineer to create really interesting, you know, sounds of picking up a pool cue and slamming it down and putting it away, you know, racking the balls, all that kind of stuff, um, which you, you know, you don't really want to put, you know, throughout in action lens.
2: All of those details, the, whether it's a cue ball with somebody playing pool in a scene or, you know, a rain, the weather, a thunder, all that's put in after the actual actors come in.
3: Yeah, exactly. You record the actors just doing their dialogue. You know, we recorded because of the pandemic, each actor alone. And Ryan and I would read opposite that actor to give them their cue lines. Um, and then our truly talented uh, engineers afterwards would would put in all the sound effects and then of course Ryan and I would listen along with our director and our producers and we would give notes you know the rain is a little bit too loud here or the the pool cue shot should be in this place instead of this place and what if we add you know uh somebody dropping a a tea kettle here you know whatever um Mm. but yeah that comes that comes afterwards it's very different so when the actor's recording they're just you know they're at home in their underpants with headphones on uh sitting on their couch and it's a, it's a very different experience
4: than when you have an actor on a set. I think this is, you know, it goes down to what works in audio and all sorts of genres can work in audio. And I think that's part of where we develop the coldest case with James Patterson and the audible originals team, the questions about crime drama being an interesting one or a thriller to explore in audio um, and all the elements that we can pull from that make for an engaging drama. And I was just thinking about your question before, you know, you remember movies, you didn't always show, up. movies used to just play all day. You used to show up, you pay $7, you show up to any time and then drop into the middle of a movie. So it wasn't like movies were watched from beginning to end. So it's not as though every, we're just kind of conditioned now that that's how experiences or even TV, we used to drop in. If you're, when we had cable TV, you just drop <laughs> into the middle of a show. Now we're conditioned to watch things from beginning to end. But I think that there is something about coming in and out of an experience that's like to Aaron saying, that's good storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but formatting the coldest case and developing, you know, this, this specific type of drama for an audible original, I think, um, presented a lot of opportunity to play with the soundscape and for an audio engineer to come in and, you know, build off of anything that's on the page, you know?
2: Right. Right. No. Yeah. And especially, you know, for our listeners who, who might, might've read the James Patterson novel that this is based on, it certainly, you know, you're kind of brought into this world that he creates, uh, crime thriller and kind of, um, second guessing the other characters as well, a little bit, I feel like. Well, it's also that,
4: yeah. And also that, you know, Billy Harney it, as it, it, one is a very complicated character. His family is, you know, is, it's a beautifully rendered book about like the complications of having a family and business together, but also he's a stand-up comedian. You know? right, right. So there's a component of it that's that's very audio driven, right, right? Yeah, and and this story
3: actually, this is a completely original story. It's actually not based yeah. on one of Patterson's books. It's a prequel as an audio drama to one of his books, which is a very confusing sentence. But basically, we took the characters and the setting from his book, The Black Book, and we came up with a story from five years earlier. What might have happened five years earlier with you know the same characters and adding a few new characters.
2: And five years earlier. So I'm curious, how, how was that, was that created? Um, you know, did it just make sense that it was five years earlier or was that something that you decided yeah, as you were writing? Was,
3: yeah, there were some important um, plot points in the existing novel, Black Book, that made sense to not go back too far. Um, we wanted to deal with what was going on with um, Billy's love life, uh, with his child. Um, yeah, so it made sense to to just do a few years in the past.
2: We'll get in a little bit more to the details and the, and the cast that you worked with as well. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk a bit about James Patterson himself, the author of um, you know, the book that this is the prequel to. So the author of, of the book that this particular audio drama is the prequel for, this is Patterson's first time doing an audio project.
5: Yes, this is the
3: first time he's been involved with an original audio drama, right? So he's had plenty of his books, you know, read for Audible, but this is the first time it's been a new work as a drama.
2: So I'm curious, you know, about that, going into this project, knowing that this was his first, um, you know, first time doing it, doing uh, an audio project as an original, you know, he, he's very well known as a as a very famously collaborative author um, and, and has, you know, over, I think over 150 books out right now, several of them were, were collaborated with, uh, you know, other writers as well. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, for, for both of you, what it was like collaborating with him and, and working with him and now kind of seeing the project through, uh, what that experience has been like.
3: I tell you, one of the most impressive things, uh, throughout this entire process was, um, just how hardworking Jim is, Um, he, so my favorite fact about him is that, and I hope this is true. And I I really do think this is true. One out of every 10 hard book, hardback books in existence is by James Patterson, which is insane, right? I mean, he is the best-selling author in the history of the world, Mm -hmm. completely crazy. Now, hearing all that, you will be very surprised to learn that every single time we sent him a document, he had it read and gave notes within 48 hours. So literally I'm talking about like the story area, you know, we would send him, which is a a five page prose document that kind of lays out the plot with a little bit about characters for the story. Okay. We would send that to him on a Friday. We would get notes back on a Monday. Um, The same thing for the outline of each episode, the same thing for the script of each episode. He loves to work. He gets up at, you know, some very early hour, 5 AM or something every day. And he works. And Talking, I actually had him on my podcast where I, I talked a little bit about his work, his work ethic, and he talks about how he does not see it as a job, he does not see it as work. He sees it as fun. He really enjoys it. He loves giving notes. He gives really good notes. He knows his brand really well. He knows what his audience expects from him and what they want from him. So you know, I have this whole long list um, of sort of. Um, You know, it's like a checklist of things that Patterson really cares about and that I know if I have not accomplished on the first draft of what I'm sending him, I will get a note about it. So it's, it's been, it's been really fun to just watch him work.
4: He's perfectly suited for this medium because of his, like I said before, his curiosity around doing new things. He's like fearless when it comes to trying out something new. Um, and his deep sense of collaboration. So, I mean, this is, this is a truly a medium built off of that. Um, both of those things. And I think that's, you know, um, I'm excited to, you know, have been part of something that he could be um introducing to the world this way.
3: Yeah. And it was cool that he trusted us with this, you know. I have a good friend who is the showrunner and creator of um a CBS show called Instinct that was based on one of his books. And you know, he had the he had a similar experience where you know, Patterson is trusting you with both the Patterson brand a little bit with the Patterson name. And that's not to say again, that he's not giving notes and that he's not reading everything and, and giving you input, but he's still, he can't be there every day on set. He can't be there, you know, writing all the scripts himself. So, you know, we, we realized that we were being given a gift here, um, by being, you know, invited into the Patterson world with the giant audience, uh, that comes with it. And so we took that seriously.
2: Hmm. That's great to hear. And especially the fact that he doesn't see his work as work. And then it's really fun. I think that's something that a lot of us, especially some of our younger listeners uh, aspire to uh, kind of reach one. Well, day. You
4: know, I think, yeah. I think that if this is a, if I understand your audience correctly on the podcast, you know, it's a lot of people who are in their in, in school for the MBAs or alumni who are going through, you know, a very career driven. Um, yep. And one that's of the correct. things that I think is, is, I have had two experiences now with people who have pivoted their careers in different ways. Um, and one is Stan Lee. The other one is, is James Patterson and his, he has before, I mean, before he was the most successful, successful author of all time, he was like the most successful advertising executive of all time. I mean, he created some of the most lasting, most impressive ad campaigns in history. And then he pivoted to become an author and now he's an author. And then he brought his brand to television. Then he brought his brand. You know, he's always changing. He's always evolving. And I think that's one of those things. And similar Stanley Stan Lee, you know, he didn't create the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man until he was in his, you know, early 40s. So it's like there's always opportunity in your career path, I think, to find either a full redirection or a full um or or to pursue something that you know you don't feel is work. Um, you know, there's there's, there's never there's not a time limit on that. Um and that's, that I think is very inspiring about uh, Jim Patterson.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I appreciate that for our listeners too. I'm sure that they, they very much appreciate hearing that. And Ryan kind of along those lines with brief follow-up questions, since you've, you know, you mentioned that you've worked with the people who have accomplished these kind of career pivots or changes down the line into their, you know, first or second careers. I'm curious if you've noticed anything in, in working with them from your perspective, that may be, uh, allowed them and gave them that kind of opportunity to go about uh, accomplishing that so well.
4: Yeah. I think the number one thing to remember is no one will ever allow you to do that. Like that, <laughs> the, this, this surely comes from pure will and, you know, knocking down those pins every day. And like Aaron said about Patterson, like getting up every morning. I mean, I, I you know, this is, he's famous. I mean, he, I can't speak for his career cause I wasn't there. I was, but it it, it was, you know he's written about this that it's well documented that he would get up every morning and write until he had to go to his to to go to work um you know you find the time to do those things because it's sheer will and tenacity and it's a long game in the entertainment business specifically like Aaron you probably have a similar feeling it's like you're not trying to go for those quick wins you're just trying to create strong work every day and you know keep keep at it um yeah, you know, there's no, there's there is no quick quick win, so um, it's just about finding the time.
2: So I'd like to pivot a little bit. But I'd like to discuss the cast. Uh, You had a star-studded cast here that you worked with. You had Aaron Paul playing uh, Detective Billy Harney and then acting alongside Kristen Ritter, who was playing uh, Billy Harney's sister, also a detective. Both incredible actors, of course, and and, and well-known from Breaking Bad. Um, and you had Natalie Emanuel from Game of Thrones and Maze Runner playing detective Patty Harney as well. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, with this audio drama still being a relatively new medium of storytelling, um, certainly there's still challenges, even, even for the, the cast. So I'm curious what you two think might have been some, some compelling or enticing. Factors here that that really convinced them to to and and to make them so excited about working on this type of project.
3: Yeah, I think it was a few things. It was um, one, the opportunity to do something new, uh, to do an audio drama. None of them had ever done it before, and so I think actors are always looking to stretch themselves. Two. <laughs> we made it in a global pandemic, as we mentioned, and uh, there was no work for actors, right? All film sets, all TV sets shut down for a while. And so this was an opportunity for them to actually get some work done. Um, and we can tell you a little bit about how we recorded, which is like a, it's a bad farce. I mean, it, 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 took, it was very, very complicated. But in the end, every single one of those three did it from their home.
1: And so, yes. not
3: having to put on a costume, not having to put on makeup, not having to have a teamster drive you an hour and a half to set—I mean, that's obviously a huge incentive. Right. Um, and then, my guess would be, without um, you know actually hearing them say it, is that they were excited to be part of a James Patterson project, right? I mean, he's yes. such a giant name; it kind of it immediately tells you you're going to get a lot of eyeballs or earballs in this case um on the project you're going to get a lot of publicity people are going to be listening and paying attention
4: I think like the experience that we've had with actors which I thought was really neat um cuz like Aaron mentioned we were the ones that It was like a a lean, mean fighting machine, the way we put together this process, because, you know, the more moving parts you have, the more complicated this becomes, the harder it becomes to make something great. So, you know, everybody chipped in, in getting this thing made, you know, Aaron and I would read against these actors, um, remotely mm. the actors would record some cases in their bathrooms some cases you know they were operating the pro tools kit themselves you know setting up the mics themselves like it was everybody was contributing um but i think that in in the writing of this, which I was surprised by to see on the other side, which is how much trust you can have, like Aaron mentioned this a little bit before, in the actors' performances and finding sort of the subtext in these characters that, you know, we tried to strip away in the writing of it so that we can keep these uh, radio teleplays lean. But it, this is just to show how incredible an actor like Aaron Paul or Kristen or Natalie or any of these people are, they just can find it. They can find it, you know, um, and and mine it. And I think that's what these characters are so rich. I think that's part of what probably attracted them to this project too, you know. Yeah, like that diner, re- like, really... like that diner scene. Come on, Aaron. I mean, when, <laughs> when your scene. audience, <laughs> I love that scene so much. But I mean, when they did it, and you know, Aaron wasn't in the room. I'm, you know, you're reading against Aaron Paul as boat Bridges. I'm Bo Bridges reading as Aaron. You know, it's all kind of mixed up. And what they found individually was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're on a TV set and the actor can
3: look at you know, take the diner for example, the actor is looking at a diner and they have someone playing the waitress walking over to them and there's food in front of them. You know, you can forget a little bit about the lights and the 250 person crew behind the camera, and you can just sort of pretend you're in a diner. In this situation, Aaron Paul was literally sitting in you know a closet of his Idaho you know mansion, (laughs) um, pretending that he was, you know, where we asked him to pretend he was oh, That's, that's awesome. really hard to bring that kind of emotion. So yeah, they, they all did an incredible job. And the cast, by the way, I mean, it goes deep. Those three you mentioned um, are sort of our leads, but then there's Bo Bridges, as Ryan just said, Mark, Paul Gossler from, you know, Stayed by the Bell and so much else. Um, Alexis Bledel from Handmaid's Tale and Gilmore Girls, Kevin Dunn from Veep, Scott Cohen from Gilmore Girls um, and and so much else, kissing Jessica Stein. There were there. It was really a truly incredible cast.
2: Well, that's really that's great to hear. And I'm you know I'm curious. So did any none of these cast members were ever in the same room as one another? Am I right with that?
3: Never. We had, so no. We had two actors who were able to go into a studio, a COVID friendly studio, and record by themselves, still in that studio. Every single other person did it from their home.
2: Fascinating to see how you know. You can really throw yourself into a character's role, and all from all from a basement or a closet. Or Ryan, you mentioned a, you know, a couple of people using a bathroom. We're all getting creative with our soundproof at-home studios here.
5: Yeah,
3: my favorite actually was um, Kristen Ritter is married to the lead singer of War on Drugs, so she was able to go into her basement where he has, you know, obviously a very elaborate recording studio, and uh, recorded from there. He had to come down and help her figure out how to use it while we were all on Zoom together. <laughs> Um, it was it was amazing, but obviously that that worked out better than you know having to be in her bathroom you know putting up sheets to you know blunt the sound of the the washing machine or the shower tiles or whatever It was pretty great. Right.
2: Very efficient teamwork there. So I'm curious, you know, you, you you mentioned that you two oftentimes, or maybe it was for most of the time, would would actually read opposite um, whoever it was that was performing at the time. Uh, I'm curious a little bit, you know, what the the benefits were of that and, and how from your perspective that really worked well since you kind of understood the story on a whole.
5: Uh, sure. So, I do think um,
3: you know it's important to give them, to give the actors that we're recording um, as much sort of emotion as we possibly can, because, like I said, they have nothing else to go on. Right? They have no sets or costumes or or anything else. So, um, I I think the ideal situation is to hire a professional actor to read opposite these people. Um, in this case. Uh, you know, that, that can be tricky with with scheduling and, and with budget and all the rest. So in this case, yeah, Ryan and I read opposite and we did our best to try to, you know, equal what they were giving us. My favorite was um, the final the final night of recording, actually. Uh, we were recording Lexus Bodell, and uh, it was a very emotional scene. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, it, it was about death. Um, uh, and <laughs> I was reading opposite her and I should say, I was acting opposite her, right? To try to give her as much as I could. And I got a little frog in my throat. I just you know swallowed something funny maybe. And so in this height of the emotional scene, um, my voice cracked and it sounded like I was crying. Like I was really trying to give her the emotion. She just laughed at me. It was so embarrassing. She really thought that this stupid reader who was brought in to you know give her her cue lines, like brought himself to a state of, of crying. Um, I was very, very embarrassed, and of course I did not tell her that it was just something in my throat. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, I did we, you tell we, her <laughs> I do not. Um, but yeah, we, we tried to give them as much as, as we were capable of.
2: That's great. Ryan, did you have a, a favorite uh reading moment like that at all similar or
4: I was terrified. I thought this was the <laughs> worst idea ever. And Aaron was like, let's just do it because Aaron's fearless and I'm like, you know, uh a ch- a chick- a chicken. Uh but, mean, the first uh, day, Ryan. The first day like was
3: was it Natalie Emanuel. You read Every line of the scene, instead of just giving her the cue line, so you were like doing all these voices of all these different characters before we really look, sort of realized that we should just give them the cue lines. It, it it,
4: it, look, I, you know, as I said before, Aaron gave me my first break in at Cornell at that theater <laughs> re, yeah, as, as an actor. So I just felt like he really saw something in me, and you know, nobody else, nobody else has, nobody else has since, and probably nobody will ever after. But
3: yeah. I remember after you did that, Natalie was like, "You know what? Next time, I think you can just give." Need a cue on, I think from now on,
4: maybe. <laughs> great. Yeah. I just, had, I just had to hear it all. I needed to warm up. Oh, that's really funny. It was awesome.
2: That sounds like it's a fun a fun experience for both of
4: you too. It was fun. You're yeah. right. And you would find it was fun. Oh, it was great. Look, I think ultimately as 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 much as I was like, uh-uh, this is like this, this is not gonna work out. It actually worked out tremendously well because again, because subtext is so hard to do in in, in audio dramas, that to have the writers uh, you know, on the call and actually giving cold reads I think actually helps because Mm -hmm. we were able to answer a lot of questions or clarify in something in the way we would be able to deliver it and again I think flat reads for actors especially in casting is better for them because they can react off of basically anything because they're such um, seasoned performers and craftsmen and women but um, you know there was certainly a degree of this was if I had to do it again, I would do it again this way. Cause I think it, the result is, is there. Um, and I was happy with doing it by the end.
3: I think by reading opposite, you're a little bit able to influence the performance. So we had one actor who was being very operatic and very loud and intense in a certain scene. And, uh, in, in my opinion, that scene called for just the opposite. And so by the third take or so, um, by giving him a much, you know, giving him his cue lines and and the rest of the scene in a much, much, much softer tone, it kind of influenced his performance a little bit. Um, Obviously, you know, as a showrunner in TV, you can't do that, right? Um, The scene is going to be what it's going to be. You can give a note or two, but in this situation, you can actually influence by by reading with them, which is kind of cool.
2: Yeah, that is really, and it seems to kind of come together as one big puzzle piece at the end, because you have all these individual audio things right and then you bring it all together what was it was it 40 days later
3: of all the Yeah, so we had a, a terrific script supervisor. Um, and so every time we would do a take, you know, our director, Matt, um, or our producer, Brian, or Ryan and I would say, you know, we were all sort of um, uh, chatting with each other. And we would say, you know, we love the second take, or we love the fourth take, or the 12th take, or whatever it was. And so then the engineers, as they're putting it all together afterwards, see all those notes and are able to use the takes we like. And then, of course, as we're editing, if a certain moment feels, you know, not in line with everything else, we can just, we have this whole reservoir of, of other takes in the can and we can just, um, you know, swap it out for something.
4: Yeah, I think to clarify Even for the audience... Yeah. I think to clarify the audience, so the the crew sort of positions as they existed in our project and they exist differently on everyone because everybody's developing their own kind of uh, systems are, you know, we had a director, we had a producer, um, we had Aaron and I as the writers and executive producers, and then um, a script supervisor, which is essentially for people who aren't familiar with script supervisor, that position is essential in every uh, film TV project, but especially in audio, I would say when you say Aaron, cause it's like to yeah. basically tracks they're, they're in charge of tracking the beat to beat emotions since we're, um, typically recording out of continuity or not with the other side of the, um, the, uh, the conversation to be able to match, um, and also to match intensity, to remind the actor where they are in the scene, uh, physically, uh, and then a sound engineer. So that was the team, basically tight group of six or so people on every, ah. um, zoom, Skype source connect <laughs> and then the actor.
2: That's incredible. So, that's a very small team.
4: Yeah. I and mean, then that's the production team. The post-production team was way larger, but I mean, it's, it's, and it, it kind of had to be that way because of COVID,
2: mm.
4: you know, See. Right. Well, Um, clearly
2: now it's possible moving forward to get, to get it done with, you know, even with constraints.
4: Yeah. Especially people there who are all there for the right reasons. And I think that's part of what it was great about it is that everybody was super passionate about getting, you know, the highest quality work done on this project. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, treated like anything less than, you know, a major motion picture or TV show would be, um, would be handled.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Were there any kind of moments when you saw a final, let's say, a scene, or when when you saw a piece come together, whether it's a scene or you know maybe it's an act out, something that came together where maybe it, it turned out a way that you two hadn't thought it would, but you were happy with kind of the creative way that it that it went? And I don't know if you're, you know, we don't obviously don't want to spoil anything, but I'm just curious if it. If maybe, you know, given all of these different takes and the fact that things are being done so separately and apart, I'm curious you know if, if anything caught you by surprise, that worked out really well.
3: Yeah, probably. I think we would both say uh, there's a giant action set piece uh, toward the end of the season where, you know, if we had written it for TV or film, I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a Mission Impossible stunt. Right. And so it would have taken days of filming. Um This, of course, the way we recorded it was just our actors at home uh, in their underpants, as I say, and then we just added in a soundscape afterwards, you know, and when they were at home in their underpants, they were yelling and screaming and breathing hard, but that was it, you know, they didn't have to do anything else. And then we added the sounds of, you know, a train crashing and cars revving up and crashing and, you know, these, these enormous stunts. And so you're always, I was a little bit nervous that it would just sound kind of silly, right? I mean, how is it possible that it's actually going to sound like a, a, $10 $10 million dollar stunts and it completely did they yeah. did such a good job i mean we're working with um broadway videos the production company the production entity that actually made the show which is you know warren Michaels' company they're they're fantastic and they did such a good job of making it sound like we were there so that was man that was gratifying that was that was really fantastic
2: well, that's exciting to hear. Well, I get you know, kind of along those same lines, where we're kind of talking about you know taking all these audio and special effects and post production and making it feel like for the audience that you are there. You know, I'm I'm curious about some of the the trends and how you see them in the audio entertainment industry. Um, I think one of one of the most interesting interesting things that we had talked about earlier was um, you know this idea of the commuting effect and how before the pandemic hit, a lot of people you know consumed their audio. Entertainment when or, or while commuting to and from work with you know subways cars buses and a lot of people predicted that with a decrease in commuting you know maybe audio entertainment consumption would decrease um, but you know as we kind of discussed the opposite actually occurred and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this uh, Ryan maybe we can start with you.
4: Well, like I mentioned, like audio, it's a, it's a flashy headline to say this is the golden age of audio because it is certainly not, Um, you know, comic books came out of the serialized audio drama. That's how we have modern comic books today. Those mythologies came from the shadow um, radio plays. So we're always sort of echoing our past when we're dealing with entertainment and nothing ever seems to create a dinosaur effect on any of our you know, we've talked about TV, eliminating film forever. We've talked about streaming, eliminating it's, it's, it's all sort of can coexist. I think there's a tremendous appetite for good storytelling, no matter what format it is in. And then, you know, the side of the commuting, the commuter effect, certainly when we were developing this project, I don't know, untold amount of hours went into the conversations between Aaron and I about what the proper length is. And, you know, we would of course, talk it through with our executive team at audible, and they would have different differing opinions, every kind of as the audio market and the audible subscriber base matured. Um, but yeah, it's certainly the commuting effect allows for, I think the opportunity now to n- dispose of this myth that these audio dramas have to be the length of a commute, which is like 20 minutes. They say they can probably be longer now. Um, Sandman that uh, an audible original is very long. It's like an audio movie essentially. Um and I think it will for creative people, anything that allows um, us to explore our stories in, in in a more unrestricted way, I think, could be kind of nice um, and certainly a good way to explore it. When you say I mean, how much how much do we talk about how long these episodes should be yeah, Probably more yeah, than I the mean- length of the episodes? <laughs>
3: That is I mean that is the the very cool thing about Audible that you really don't have to if if you if we wanted to have one episode be 1 minute long and another episode be 45 minutes long they'd be completely fine with that yes. so you know, and, and that's how, of course, streamers are more and more in TV these days. Um, so it, that's a that's a lot of freedom. That's that's really nice. Um, and we decided, you know, I think originally it was going to be a 10 episode show, but it just kind of worked best to be a nine episode show. And so we pivoted and that's what we ended up doing. And Audible could care less like they were completely fine with that. Um I have absolutely no, I am very curious about the future of audio drama. I have absolutely no idea what it's going to be. A lot of people I'm, you know, the, the Sunday times this week had um, a bunch of articles about the future of podcasts. No one really knows anything. Um, But a lot of creators are trying to use audio dramas just as a way to create IP for television shows and, and film. And when that happens, you can kind of tell, right. If people's heart is not in it, if they're just sort of putting this, um, you know, if if they're just sort of creating it in order to take the next step, you know, Ryan and I actually really do love podcasts, um, and so hopefully, you know, you can tell from the show. Um, my guess would be, you know, with Spotify, with iHeart, with Luminary, with Audible, of course, um, putting a lot of resources into creating these audio dramas, that they are going to be around for a while and that they sort of know what they're doing. And there's going to be a lot of great shows. There'll be a few that bust out and become, you know, talked about like Sam is a little bit like Homecoming was a little bit before mm-hmm. it became a Julia Roberts TV show. Um, we haven't really had an audio drama like that since Homecoming. Um but there will be more. And I really, really, really hope that this lasts for boy uh, five, 10 years, something like that. And I hope to be proved wrong. And for it to become as you know, a rival for TV
4: and last for 50 years, who knows? Yeah. Anything that provides access to creators to express their voice, I think is a good thing. Honestly, right. like who, I mean, like Aaron said, who knows where this goes, but it doesn't have to be, um, superstar Emmy award-winning right. Oscar award-winning talent. I mean, the fact that you can put this together with six people, but if you put attention to detail towards it um, and, and again, make it so that like you care about the audio drama itself. And I think that is the, that is the what Aaron said is, is key. Like we wanted to make this an audio experience. No, yeah. nothing else was even in our mindset at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, which. I hope you. Yeah, I hope you guys can tell. Yeah, I'm sure. It. Yeah,
2: I'm definitely. Uh, especially.
4: Oh, sorry. Go on. Get good headphones. Yeah. I, I go to Aaron, I go to Aaron for all of my headphone recommendations.
3: <laughs> no, I. What do I know? I just use my um my Apple earpods, um, which I love. But w- what I aspire to, um, which I I don't think I've ever done, is just like, I, and I'm wondering, maybe maybe you have an answer, but do you think anybody? is just sitting on the couch with their girlfriend or boyfriend and their husband or wife. And they just put the the phone or the computer on the ottoman between them and they just play the podcast and they just look at each other or look at the walls, the way that we do a TV. Do you think anybody in America is doing that? Cause I kind of hope they are.
2: If I had to guess, I would imagine because I have to say there's something kind of, I don't know if the word is cathartic, but there's something nice about just kind of, not zoning out, but it's almost like a form of meditation, right? In a way, I would imagine yeah.
3: kind of inundated by screens. Like it's right. an opportunity to turn the screen off and, right. and hear a story in a different way. Right. Right. No, I couldn't agree more. Ryan, have you ever done that?
4: Yes, 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 yes. I, I worked with a, another another actress, another project, and she was raised on audiobooks by her, by her family. And she would do what exactly what you just said. She would be, she was allowed access to technology. So she had an iPad or whatever, but it, and her and her brother, and they would sit with the headphones on staring at the ceiling and imagining the stories that were being told. So they listened to Harry Potter before they could read as an I example. That. Great. Um, and that's it, it, it both, ignites your imagination as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Aaron, you, and you said it like it, it is an intimate format. It is a super, super intimate format.
3: Yeah. Um, but, but I love that idea that you have to do a little bit more of the work, of course, because even though, you know, in our case, we have some some really recognizable actors. So you're probably picturing them. You have to picture the sets and the costumes mm-hmm. and the scene, you know, just everything else, which really right. makes the the listener involved in the show in a way that they're not when they're sort of passively watching TV. Right. Yeah.
2: No, that's a good point. Kind of exercising a different form of the brain, almost to create that imagination. Right.
4: Think, about, th- think about earphones, too. I'm sorry. This is like a tangent, but like you were just saying... I couldn't help but think about it, Aaron, because I'm like looking at you with your AirPods in my AirPods are over my ears. And like I'm thinking when we were even in not so long ago, air headphones didn't do either of those things. You couldn't put they weren't in ear or over the ear. They were like on top of your ear, like a Sony Walkman was like, yeah. Right. Not a, so. Even the technology sort of creep, like in a in a weird way, sort of creeped up and became allowed or audio to sort of take over. Right. So now it's in your. It's either in your ear or over your ear. Right.
3: Yeah. There's no doubt that this is. You know, it's not a coincidence that this is coinciding with the rise of this technology. Yeah, yeah. It's, this, this would have been a terrible medium 10 years ago. If you just had to, Well, I mean, obviously, as Ryan was saying, it existed in the 40s, but it wasn't, you know, there weren't the hundreds of shows that there are about to be, both nonfiction and fiction. Hundreds, what am I saying? There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of these podcasts out there. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I guess I'm, you know, I'm wondering, do you think that as kind of the, these different audio technologies expand, right? We have kind of a surround sound experience with headphones and different, you know, I've kind of seen them lightly marketed a little bit. Do you think that that'll expand, um, you know, your, your opportunities as creators for the types of audio projects you can work on?
3: I, I think a little bit, but I think, you know, I've listened to some of these shows that are using the cutting edge tech where you, you know, I, I, I don't know the right terms. I don't really understand the technology, but you're hearing uh, different elements from, you know, different parts of um, uh, the soundscape at different times. I think it's a trick. Yeah. It really just feels um, like a gimmick to me. And if you are focused more on that instead of the storytelling, it's a recipe for disaster.
4: Yeah, I agree with Aaron on on that component. I mean, maybe what it'll do will allow for you to have that single quote like single screen experience, maybe because it's as a as an audience member, but as a creator, you can't create around the technology. I think that's mm-hmm. it, this is partially why virtual reality has yet to take off because everything is built around the gimmick and you know the aha gotcha moment and not the actual like. Uh, the human psychology, which is just seeing life on screen or hearing life on yeah. in, in your ears.
3: Yeah. Remember when when like 3D movies were gonna take over the world and every movie was gonna be 3D? And obviously James Cameron did a pretty good job with his, but that was it, right? I mean, it didn't become this entire 3D renaissance where you know Scorsese's new movie was done in 3D. Um, because in the end, you know, people just like really good stories. Um, this kind of technology, yeah, that that especially technology that takes away from the story because you're more focused on, you know, the train coming at you within your 3d glasses or whatever um yeah it just it it's it's not enjoyable after all
2: that being said, uh, I did have one more question going back to the very beginning of our, of our discussion. And, you know, if you two were to kind of think back to your undergraduate formative years at, at Cornell together with Aaron giving Ryan his big break. Sure. And uh, earlier you mentioned that kind of memorable writing seminar. Um, you know, did you think that for both of you, did you think that you'd see yourself here today um, collaborating on this incredible new audio drama and looking forward, you know, I'm curious, where do you see yourselves going in the next few years?
5: I hope so. I think both of us definitely knew that we wanted careers in storytelling.
3: Um, you know, I think specifically Ryan was probably thinking about film. I was probably thinking about TV and film um, so yeah, I think it's you know I I almost jumped ship a couple times. I, I applied to law school, you know, when I had a bad assistant job in Hollywood, and you know things look bleak as as kind of everybody does, right? It's an incredibly unstable career. Sure. It's a roller coaster of emotions. You know, you really <laughs> yeah, a friend who's an incredibly successful writer talks about it as um you know it's just an exercise in daily humiliations. You know, especially when you're you're working your way up, you're constantly um you know you're asked to do free work and then it never goes anywhere and you're treated poorly and um it's really hard uh, but another good friend just says if you have the requisite talent it's a war of attrition just stay <laughs> just stay keep plugging away keep writing and good things will happen if you have that sort of base talent um and so yeah so so Ryan and I have, have both stuck it out um and you know, I, I think we're both very happy that we now have, you know, full careers uh, doing this, just making stuff up for a living. Um, you know, for the future, right now, TV is tough. You know, just in this particular moment, just because of the pandemic and how much was shut down last year, and so therefore how little is being bought right now. Obviously, that'll change. It'll go back to the way it was a year ago, which was absolutely probably the pinnacle for um, you know uh, for for great TV, right? More stuff was being bought, more stuff was being made. All sorts of different networks were popping up for new voices, new kinds of voices, new storytellers. It was fantastic. And we'll get back there. Um, But in the meantime, not just during this pandemic, although I'm I'm very happy that the pandemic sort of uh, taught me about audio dramas, but um, I really hope that this sticks around because they are just, if, if you love writing, if you love writing two people in a room talking, this is such a great medium. So
5: yeah, I, I'm very hopeful uh, that it's going to stick around.
2: Great. And Ryan?
4: Well, when it comes to working with Aaron and if I knew that we we're going to work together in college, i um, I didn't think that anybody would be foolish enough to go into entertainment and film and TV, much less two people that I know. Uh, So, I mean, it is like Aaron was saying, like it is it is a tough business in so many respects, psychologically, um, financially, it can be it can be very challenging, especially early on. And like Aaron said, the attrition side of it is is a huge piece of it. But if you love what you do every day and using Patterson as the pinnacle of that example, like you'll get it done, you'll find a way you'll have other jobs, you um, will find a, a way to express your voice. And I don't think that there's only only one path. Um, you can give up, you can come back in, you know, it's not easy, but that's the way you, you can, you can do that. You have to do what's best for yourself in a lot of ways. I mentor a lot of people out of Cornell because Cornell is not necessarily known for its, um, film and TV program and its creative arts program. But what it is mm-hmm. known for is being a really strong li- li- liberal arts. Is that how you say liberal <laughs> arts, uh, <That's> college. <laughs> and like, I mean, Aaron, you didn't major. What did you major in history, film? government? Yeah. English, 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 Okay. English, right. Which is, you
3: know, it's, it has, you know, very little bearing on what I do day to day, of course, but just having a background in reading tons and tons and tons of stories and books is actually incredibly helpful for what we do.
4: Exactly. And you're like finding and experiencing different things when you're in your undergraduate career and any institution. I think that's one of the wonderful things that I think people miss out on when you're becoming a filmmaker or TV writer or creator. It's that like, it's what makes your voice special is you and your, your lived experience. And some of that is the curiosity you seek outside of the business you're in. Like I, I thought Aaron was a government major cause he knows so much about <laughs> history and government and things like this. And, you know, a lot of his writing is so rich because of it. Um, and you know, I'm interested in science and I took a lot of science courses and, college, not to be, uh, a doctor, but because I was just interested in that. And, you know, a lot of my work in science fiction is informed by that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we did a lot, we were able to imbue a lot of, uh, to, uh, my or is it my chagrin or is it your chagrin, Aaron? I don't know, but we were able to put a lot of tech kind of science stuff into the coldest case because yeah. we were kind of curious about that, and you know the stories are better for those kinds of your, your outside interests.
3: Totally sure. great Yeah, and and while the show is very much sort of a genre James Patterson cop thriller, it really is imbued with with what Ryan and I are interested in. Um, so you know, Ryan, I had never heard of esports. Right and Ryan, what do you you love esports or are you just it's the kind of thing? Of course, Ryan knows about because he knows about all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, a major pot point became uh, the esports league, which is a billion dollar
4: industry. I had no idea. Um, a lot of people, well, yeah. Well, well, and then set to the background of a of 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 a lot of political intrigue, which is something that you're <laughs> you know you understand better yeah. than I do by, by a long shot.
3: Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of my favorite writers um, didn't come, you know, didn't graduate school and move to Hollywood and become an assistant and just work their, their way up the ladder. Because when you do that, oftentimes you're not a well rounded three dimensional person, right? Mm. All you know is storytelling, which can really help your craft, but it's not going to make your voice particularly interesting. Sure. You know, and so obviously there are tons of exceptions to that. But I do think that, you know, there's a reason that a lot of my favorite writers come from different disciplines. They come a little bit later in their careers. They just they have more interest. They have more stuff to write about than people who just graduate from school, move to Hollywood, become an assistant and work their way
4: up. That's right. All those astrophysicists out there, go get your screenplays.
2: (laughs) Thank you to both of you. And congratulations on the upcoming release of The Coldest Case. Thank Thank
3: you. you. This was really fun. Thank you for having us. It's so nice to, to be reconnected with Cornell a little
5: bit.
2: What are you doing here, bro?
5: Came to see you, Patty. We got a problem.
2: (laughs) We're going to have a bigger one if you don't close that garage door. Ari doesn't like the Porsche exposed to the sun for too long.
5: Patty, it's a car.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Says the man who used to have a complete meltdown when I'd even breathe around his baseball
5: cars. That was different. Sure it was. Hey, Jenna. Hi, Patty. So, Patty, I may have solved our problem. I just need the keys to Ari's car. Excuse me? Daddy.
2: How did you even know about the car? Jana, did you show
5: no, him? No, 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 I was in your garage looking for something. Jana came out and tried to talk me out of borrowing it. Why don't you tell me Ari had a Porsche?
2: Billy, there is absolutely no chance.
5: No. Look, the exchange with Sandra is only a few hours away. This is the only idea I have to get the Bitcoin we need. Look, we'll buy it back first thing tomorrow morning before they even resell it. Come on, sis. All those months of hard work on the stakeout. Can't let them go to waste. I can't believe this. Promise
2: Ari will never even know it was gone. Not even a scratch, Billy.
5: I promise
0: you're the best. Hi, everyone. We're here with the production team behind the Present Value Podcast episode that you just heard. I am Christine Gabrelian, your host with Minway and Will. I I thought it was really interesting, especially since ever since the pandemic
6: hit, I've been kind of craving content and media that's not involving screen time. So it's very interesting to hear them, you know, really revolutionize this new genre of audio dramas, which I've never heard of before. So it was great to get the definition from, from Aaron and Ryan and then also think about, you know, where the future of this is heading, which is really exciting.
7: No, I love their Cornell stories. It was great to hear uh, of these two guys meeting when they were freshmen. I hope that maybe the two of us could be doing some business down the line one day. Um, but it was just really great to kind of hear their story come full circle for them. Um, and now they're kind of working on this new project together, working together in a professional setting for the first time. Um, and as Minba said, it was just kind of great to hear about the, uh, their Traverse and audio.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was just so funny that they were friends from freshman year. I think back to my freshman year chances? friends. What?
7: What are the chances? I know. Crazy.
6: I mean, I just think it's very cool to hear them give like career advice as well, which is really um, pushing us to keep on exploring like interdisciplinary topics that we're interested in. Like you said earlier, Christine, like none of them you know, did this before venturing into this audio drama project, they were in TV and film, and just pushing their boundaries and writing something specifically for an audio drama, like that's a personal challenge. And I think it's great that they're taking this when they're already so well into their careers.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I really like their kind of comments on just maintaining curiosity and and always trying to, you know, explore and try new things. I think that's awesome advice to live by.
7: It was also interesting to hear, you know, Cornell um, may not have the strongest ties into the media and entertainment world, but them taking it kind of upon themselves is to be ambassadors for our our university um, to bring people into the space. I know it's
0: just so it's so cool too. what they were saying about, like, some of the best stories coming from people who, you know, have different backgrounds and unique experiences and, you know, across the industries. And I think hopefully we'll see you know, more of those different types of perspectives and backgrounds in the field that are maybe not like the set trajectory, you know, I think that just only, you know, makes stories and, um, you know, adventures and thrillers all the more exciting.
6: I think it's so interesting how their hypothesis is that like all of these technological advancements, if they don't have storytelling behind them and like really can strike a chord with the audience in terms of human emotions and human empathy, then it's not going to take off. And I think that's so true. Um, I was like nodding along vigorously as
0: they were. (laughs) Yeah. Go
7: ahead.
0: No, go ahead.
7: I was going to say, I feel like that, that notion of storytelling is like, it's true for us too, even as like students and here in our MBA is like a huge part of this process for us is Um, coming up with our story mm -hmm. Um, and coming up with like, you know, whether you're recruiting for consulting or tech or banking or, you know, media and
5: entertainment, you know, a a part of this being at school is developing that story and and being a, a